Welcome to the New England Law Review On Remand podcast. I'm Volume 51's Executive Online Editor, Amanda Palmera. The New England Law Review is the law review publication of New England Law Boston, which is located in downtown Boston, Massachusetts. To learn more about our institution, visit the website at nesl.edu. And to learn more about our publication, go to our website, newenglrev.com. On our website, you can find our most recent blog posts and our past and current on-remand and New England Law Review issues. Today, I am joined by participants Dean Eric Guven, Professor Eric Lustig, and Professor Gary Bishop. Eric Guven is Dean of Western New England University School of Law, where he teaches courses in corporate, transactional, and entrepreneurship law, and where he has established both the Small Business Clinic and the Center for Innovation and Entrepreneurship. Dean Guven's contribution to the New England Law Review's online symposium is titled, What's Law Got to Do With It? An Essay About the Balance of Power in Corporate Governance Between Officers, Directors, and Shareholders. Thank you for joining us today, Dean Guven. My pleasure. Professor Eric Lustig has been a part of the New England Law Boston faculty since 1993, and he's the director of the Law School's Center for Business Law. Professor Lustig has frequently contributed to the New England Law Review and has contributed to our online symposium by authoring a foreword with a detailed background of the Market Basket saga, as well as authoring an article with New England Law Boston professor Susan R. Finneran titled, The Close Corporation Legacy of the Demulas Market Basket Saga, A Case Against Type. Thank you for joining us, Professor Lustig. Thank you. Professor Gary Bishop teaches at New England Law Boston, where he is also the director of the Legal Research and Writing Program. Professor Bishop has contributed to our online symposium with a review of the book, We Are Market Basket, the story of the unlikely grassroots movement that saved a beloved business by David Corsham and Grant Welker. Thank you for joining us today, Professor Bishop. Thank you. My pleasure. To start off our discussion, my first question is Professor Lustig. Why did you choose this topic for a symposium, and why did you believe it would be a good topic for specifically online symposium? Well, first of all, thank you, Amanda, for uh, your work on this, and thanks to your predecessor, Brandon Airy. So when I first came to Boston in 1993, I think that was in the middle of, I think, what's been referred to as the 10-year saga of the original litigation. I actually didn't know very much about the, the business itself. I just knew about what was going on in some of the litigation, and that was when the great law clerk saga happened where a law clerk was lured up to Canada and has its own history. And, and then the pretty landmark decision by Judge Lopez and the appellate decisions that were pretty significant in terms of the reshuffling and shaping of the corporation. And, you know, that was in the background as I went through my career and, and I teach a basic course in biz org, so that was always a, a scenario and a, and a case that we addressed. And at some point, as I moved into the suburbs, I was shopping at any of the local chain, lo- local stores of the national chains you've all heard about. And I knew there were some market baskets, but, I, you know, it just wasn't, I wasn't comfortable with it. I didn't know anything. And then a friend of mine told me, and this friend was the frozen food manager of one of the, these stores, and he said, you really have to check out Market Basket. So here's someone working for a competitor, and he says, you really have to go check out Market Basket. He's, he went on his lunch hour, and he took the uh, tape from the register, and he compared it to his inventory and the prices at his store, and he said, it's 25 or 30% less for the same stuff. So I didn't believe him, so I actually went and tried it on my own, and then I was looking around, and this is almost... 10 miles from where I live, so there are many closer stores. 
And what my friend said was true. And then I also noticed a lot, I saw a lot of my neighbors there. So I was really intrigued at that point more by the business side than the legal side. And then the events of a couple of summers ago happened. And then the legal part really came back. And I thought, wow, you know, what's going on? The management's doing a great job. Is this, how will this come out? And will the store survive? I got to thinking about the legal issues in the context of, of my teaching. And then uh, Professor Finner and I are writing a book and we talk about a lot of these themes. And it, it turns out we're going to spend the last chapter using this as a model and hopefully continue on with some of these ideas. And we had a discussion a couple of years ago with the Center for Business Law where we had a couple of practitioners and Professor Bishop and Professor Desias led the discussion. And so this is almost a continuation. That happened right as the, the settlement occurred. And so we wanted to let some time pass and, and get something on paper. And that's the reason we went with the symposium. The online symposium had some real attractions to me. One was to see whether we could do a symposium online. We've worked with the Law Review before on a traditional symposium. And there's a lot of cost involved. And you do all the work to get something out in paper. And then it sort of sits there. And the hope with this is that we could hit a moving target, I think, a little bit more accurately. And we could, we could keep up with it. And so, for example, we hope to put together a pretty good bibliography in the next year and then we can link to that and we can keep these ideas growing and I think the nature of the writing and I was really pleased to see the other contributions they're great they're a little bit more accessible I think for our students and for our, our general population they may not they may not be as they may not be as attractive as the huge law review articles but I think there's a real place for this kind of writing and I've enjoyed doing it I, the feedback I, I we've got gotten from other articles has been really, really good. So thanks at this point to our other contributors, to Dean Gouven and to Professor Bishop, and then Sue Finneran, who is now emeritus, is not able to join us, but I'm sure she's going to be following the podcast. Great. Thank you. Our next question is for all of the panelists. How did you choose your topics and angles on the Market Basket Saga? And with your writing process, were there other possible angles that you considered or did you stick to one approach throughout your writing? Well, uh, this is Eric Goof, and I'll start off with that question. When Professor Lustig asked if I would be interested in, in, in participating, the catalyst was basically the, the publication of the Kirshen and Welker book, We Are Market Basket, which sort of summarized what had been a sprawling story. And there's a whole backstory before we get to the events that are really chronicled in, in the book. The backstory being about 25 years of litigation between these factions of, of the two, the Mulas clans. And that's largely missing from the book. But uh, the book brings up themes that have always intrigued me as a corporate scholar. Uh, what role does the corporation play as a, as a citizen? How far can a corporation go in doing things that are good for the community, for vendors, for employees, for customers? and not get in trouble for failing to take interests of the shareholders to heart. And I guess what really, as a, as a corporate teacher, is, probably I can trace this interest to, is the famous case of Dodge versus Ford. I love this case. I spend a lot of time on it, on it in class when I teach biz wars. Uh, it's a totally wrong case <laughs> by modern corporate statute uh, approaches. But the, the, the judge in that case castigates Ford for uh, running the Ford Motor Company as a semi-eliomacenary institution. 
as if it were a charity of some kind. And, and the thing was, uh, a lot of the students fall for it. A lot of the students look at what Henry Ford was doing and think, what a great guy. He, he had the $5 day. He doubled the wages of his workers on the floor. And isn't that, isn't that really wonderful? And because I'm a lawyer, <laughs> I have to look a little below the surface and wonder what, what are the motivations for people to do things. And sometimes people do things just because they're good. And sometimes people do things because, you know, it's a good thing that happens to also be very beneficial to them. And that's the case with Henry Ford. The $5 day made, made his reputation. After, after he raised the – basically doubled his workers' salaries, he didn't have to buy advertising for a decade because he got all the free publicity he wanted in the papers. He was a folk hero. Uh, customers loved him. They thought he was this incredibly far-thinking pro-worker guy. And he, he wasn't necessarily that guy. He, he had a problem. He had a, a, a workforce that turned over four times per year. Each position on the floor turned over four times per year. That's incredibly costly. When he doubled the wages, turnover disappeared. People stuck to those jobs. They were good-paying jobs. They wanted them forever. He was worried about unions. He hated unions. For the $5 day killed the union. There was no chance that any union uh, activity was going to come in until much later on, and that was a terrible, terrible episode in the history of the Ford Motor Company when the UAW did try to organize. Morale was, was, was terrible. Uh, this was mind-numbing, spirit-breaking work on the, on the floor. The $5 day did a lot to make people feel like, well, it's worth it. And so, yeah, paying your workers well is a nice thing and it's a good thing. It's not necessarily driven by the motivation of, I just want to do the right thing. It might be a situation where the right thing coincides with the profitable thing. So I come to the market basket saga with a similar perspective. Like, who can argue with what RDT was doing? Treating his workers really well, treating his vendors fairly, giving the customers a great deal. As Professor Lustig pointed out, 20, 25% lower than competitors. Aren't all those things just unalloyed good things to do? And maybe, but maybe they're also part of a larger plan that pays off extremely well for RDT, especially for RDT vis-a-vis -vis his cousin Arthur S. in terms of keeping control over this corporate empire. Uh, so that's what the theme of my, my piece is about, is that RDT was brilliant. Being a minority shareholder who by a quirk of this company business, was in control of the operation. He used these other constituencies, his workers, his customers, his vendors, to keep control against the folks who really should have had control, the majority shareholders, uh, and, it, and it was a brilliant piece of work on his part. He did well by doing good. I guess that's really the theme. And then in your writing process, did you consider other angles or... You know, I started the whole process by reading the book and making notes to myself about in the book and thinking about it when I walked the dog. And then uh, <laughs> eventually it kind of gelled around this question of was it all – the book takes such a strong laudatory tone towards RDT that I just had to naturally sort of rebel against that. It just seemed like no guy is that good. In my experience as a human being, never mind as a lawyer, it's rare that one guy is completely good and one guy is completely bad. And, and they painted this with such broad strokes that I, I just wanted to push back against that.
I appreciate that outlook. <laughs> uh, and Professor Bishop, your your topic. Right, and that was uh, sort of foisted upon me by uh, Professor Lustig when he, he asked me, you know, but in a good way, are you interested in reading this book and reviewing it? So I, I didn't have to come up with a topic per se, but uh, much like you mentioned, Dean Gubin, as I read, I took notes, um, had been familiar with what happened with Market Basket, but learned a great deal more in reading the book and the good job the authors did of chronicling um, it. And, and Arthur, RDT, is the, the hero. He definitely is. And you find yourself, in a sense, rooting for him, even knowing the outcome, knowing how it all ends. And, and the authors do make some effort to, to provide a balanced approach. I'm a, a, one of the quotes I have in my uh, review is that they, they describe him as a man of many talents, but one who has flaws and probably a few regrets. So they do sort of let you know he's not perfect, but did create this tremendous loyalty um, in his workers, which was what allowed all these events to happen. So I tried to cover that in the review and also as somebody who teaches in the area to talk about the corporate law aspects of it of the dispute and where the two sides lined up and how how the dispute played into that analysis. But mostly it was, I think the strength was the number of people who the authors talked to, workers and customers, and what their feelings were about Market Basket. It really made clear for me how this all came about, you know, in a way that watching a news report or reading a newspaper story didn't. So, so for our piece, we started off initially it's, it's hard to separate our piece from the whole symposium, but we started off asking what what would be next, and that sort of morphed into the theme of, of whether, whether there's a legacy. It's, it's all sort of the same question, but maybe phrased differently, but the specific thing that we thought we might try to write was, well, what happens if the whole thing had gone over the cliff? And I think certainly in Eric Gouven's piece, that was a possibility. I mean, that was sort of what that was what I think RDT teed up was my way or the highway, sort of. And if what happens if they had really just taken the company under and there had been a lawsuit? And what the, what would that lawsuit have looked like? Which we then decided against doing that particular piece, but instead doing what is also, I think, very consistent with the other pieces, which was, you know, when you look at this at first glance, it sounds like it doesn't follow the law. It sounds like it's against type. The minority shareholder in a closely held business shouldn't be able to control things. And there is this, you know, great line of cases in Massachusetts on closely held corporations, which provides a lot of protection. Why didn't RDT rely on that instead of waging the fight that he did? And then as we dug into each one of these, and I think we, we have four examples of where it could go against type. As we dug deeper, it was fascinating because it was maybe the case is completely following type. And that may mean that there isn't a great legal legacy. There's clearly a great business legacy from this case. Um, so that was, that was what drove our particular article. My next question is for all of you. If you could discover or uncover one particular fact or thing that was a part of the Market Basket story, what would it be? Well, for me, it's more of a general fact. And, you know, we know a lot about RDT, as I mentioned, he's sort of the hero of the book, and his side of the uh, the Mullis family ultimately went out. But I'm I'm interested in in Arthur S., who was the leader of the other side. We know a, a little bit about him, but everything that I've read in news stories and even in the book 
Um, he, he's still a bit of a mystery to me. We know that he was never really interested in working in the business, or he did, but not as extensively as um, RDT, and has never really, as the authors tell us, revealed his true feelings about Market Basket. I mean, we know about all the litigation and all of that, and that he felt wronged in some way. But from a human side, I'm interested in you know getting deeper into that and and why and what was he. All, uh, all about it may just be a simple question of, you know, two sides who didn't get along, who were interested in different things, and it ended up in a in a dispute. But if I could, I would like to know more about what he's about and and what was really motivating him in this whole saga. I think I'd like to know more about what was going on with the shareholder who really drove the recent set of events, which was Raphaela Evans, who was Evan DeMoulis's widow. Why did she initially support the other side of the family, and for quite a while, and then what made her change her mind? Perhaps it was just that that side decided they wanted to sell the business, and that was a choice she could go along with. But I, I, I do wonder why she didn't support her cousin, cousin law I'm not sure how you would phrase it, at the beginning. Something was going on there, and it made me think, and when Eric Gouven gave me some comments on, on our piece, it tied in, there's an old case that I don't teach that often in BizOrg called Ringling Brothers, and the lawyers did a great job of setting up, basically, there were two sides of the family, and did a great job of setting up control in the side that, that no one had a majority, but if you put them together, they could control most of the board. But they had to basically cooperate. The case goes into, if they didn't cooperate, could they be forced to vote a certain way? And there's a whole different side to that, which doesn't really matter for our point. But the interesting point is that one of the relatives, I believe her name was Aubrey Haley, decided not to support that side of the family. And the great backstory, I wrote a little bit about it, and Eric said, well, you left the best part out. <laughs> the, the great story was that her husband was, I think he was the ringmaster of the of the circus when the great Connecticut circus fire happened in Hartford. Hartford and undeniably it wasn't his fault, but he took the fall. Everyone threw him under the bus. He went to prison. So the other side of the family was nice to him when he was in prison. And the side he was that his wife was supposed to vote with didn't treat him very well. So when he got out of prison, they weren't going to follow all of that stuff. And so it was a very personal but, but human reaction. And it makes me wonder what went on there. Yeah, I had the same question. Was, it turns out going to visit, uh, I think it was Donald Ringling in, in the prison, yeah. made all the difference, right? That that simple kindness was uh, was sufficient to change the alliances. I have no idea what was going on with Raffaella, but I'm intrigued by that. And of course, as I said earlier, I can't believe that Arthur S. is all bad, mm -hmm. just as I can't believe that RDT is all good. Right. But the thing that I wanted to know is, between the summer of 2013 and the summer of 2014, how involved was RDT with his top management people in developing this as a game plan? Because my piece sort of assumes there was a game plan. It's not mentioned in the, in the book. Mm -hmm. But I find it hard to believe that it just sort of sprang spontaneously from the hearts and minds of loyal uh, lieutenants in the field. But I, I, I think it was coordinated. How, and, yeah. How much of it? Yeah. How much of it was tacit, and how much of it was just based on intuition and gut? We had we one of the things we've talked about since. I'm, I consider myself a loyal customer. I was heartbroken during the whole thing. I had to pay 25% more for my groceries. But a funny thing happened. 
all the competitors knocked the prices down until Market Basket came back online. And they were even they were slightly better in their customer service. But a friend of mine who works in that business told me, he said, it was understood by the vendors that if they stuck by Market Basket, Market Basket would make them right when it was all over. Now, I don't think that was ever written down. I think people had to had to sort of rely on it. I mean, and the other thing that is interesting, and you, ever, you see this in everything you, you read about this, is, is the customer boycott. So I'm a, I'm a customer. I was a customer. Yeah, I boycotted because there wasn't anything to buy. I, I really didn't have a choice. So I think it's the term customer boycott isn't as accurate as maybe continued customer support. I think the, the other thing that, and I don't know if this was just a gut or, or intuition, but I think RDT's plan had to rely on the fact that folks would come back, and they did. As soon as they reopened, people came back in droves. But the boycott, you didn't have a choice. You did have a choice about whether you're going to go back or not. And that, I think, was really critical. Well, I think one of the things that turns out to be brilliant in retrospect is the, the whole craziness of 2014 generated incredible goodwill for the market basket that eventually reemerged. Mm-hmm. That people who didn't shop at Market Basket prior to the kerfuffle end up being made aware of what a great place it is. And the PR story has real legs. And I think after RDT is reinstalled and they get the, the company up and running again after the buyout, um, they end up even stronger in terms of their customer base. I, yeah, I think, I think that's what at least the reported data shows. Yeah, And right down to the great stories of not only you know the boycott you mentioned, people shopping at other stores because they're forced to and taking their register receipts, right, and, and hanging them on the outside of right. the market baskets right. to, to show the difference in price, which maybe weren't by accident that this happened, but things like that. But yeah, for the, people but, on the outside saying, what's this all about? But for the vendors, I think they were the most precarious spot. I mean, right. Some of those, some of those vendors who were very loyal, this was their only meaningful account, mm-hmm. right? And to not be selling to Demoulis meant they weren't really selling to anybody, right? And they were scrambling to find other people to take their wares. And what if, what if Market Basket didn't come back, <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, what if, what if Arthur S.'s side prevailed and he purged all the mm-hmm. folks who were loyal to to RDT? This was a real gamble right. for the for the vendors, mm-hmm. and that was certainly. What made it from a business standpoint so remarkable? You know, here we have people who are working part time, and and while they, I think they were treated very well economically, they certainly weren't in the position of people in the executive suite. Mm-hmm. And they're backing mm-hmm. a guy who, at least according to something I saw online, is one of the fiftieth wealthiest people in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. So very, very interesting. Yeah, both of the Arthur Demoulises are billionaires. Yeah. there's no doubt about that. Yeah. Um, were you referring to the employees? Well, the employees and the vendors. Um, Less about the customers, although I think for some customers, when at least this was reported, and it's hard to sometimes distinguish between what's reported and what's spun, but there were a fair number of customers who really rely on that those inexpensive groceries. I mean, that's part of how they make their households work. Yeah. And I can only tell you that it is, in my experience, about a 25 to 30 percent difference between competitors well you know it was and that's was their competitive advantage right yeah. that they were the low-cost provider in markets they had the clout of high volume they had the advantage of low cost they had virtually no debt all their expansion was internally financed 
they had a non-unionized workforce. And if you look at all of their competitors, they're all unionized. Um, so the Moolis was a low-cost provider and a low-price seller. Um, so this changes a lot of that because to get this to end, RDT has to make a deal with the devil. Right. He takes on $1.6 billion of debt that he says they're ahead of, uh, ahead of schedule of paying down. But reports that I've seen online uh, from, from customers who chime in on, on blogs and like, say that they think the prices have gone up. Now, the prices have gone up in general. There has been a little bit of inflation in general. But some of the things that they point out about market basket prices make me think, yeah, you know, there's a consequence to this. I, I think anecdotally prices have gone up a little bit. And then one well-publicized thing that happened in the during this last part was there was a 4% discount, give back, whatever you want to call it, for almost a year where prices were knocked down at the register another 4%. And so that went away. And, you might, and, you might and, call that a bribe. And that was a straight 4% <laughs> increase. You know, I wanted to add one other thing, because, and this is just from the, the social observer part. One of the other things that happened when you go to that store, and again, this may just be my opinion, but I, but I think it's also borne out by the articles, the customer service is better. There's more registers open. They move you through. One of the things about their business is they, they stock during the day. And so they're always stocking. And so there's always – stuff doesn't run out. It's always stocked. And then if you need to ask, there's someone to ask. And the people are you – know, the people seem to really enjoy their jobs and seem to get the idea that customer service is really a culture of that business. And that is not my impression from going to lots of other – uh, grocery stores, starting from high-end ones to, to discount ones. That, that comes out in the book, the authors do, and they talk to a lot of the customers, a lot of to whom that's important, and as you right. mentioned, people are always stocking shelves, so there are people there, you're greeted when you come into the store, and people like that, there's no waiting at the registers, and yeah, yeah so. And that's a real thing. I have a little a little anecdote in my piece about my father-in-law. Right. He grew up in Delrica, uh, grew up in Lowell, Delrica. He shopped at the original Demoulis's store. He knew Mike Demoulis, and Mike Demoulis was a very personable person. You know, he, he he took an interest in his customers and his employees. And my father-in-law's dog was sick, and the and the Mike Demoulis says, "You know what he needs? Sheep hearts." <laughs> and so he went out and got sheep hearts from my from my father-in-law's dog, Duke. Duke recovered from his uh, from his illness, and uh, my father-in-law has been a loyal customer of what he calls Demoulis's ever ever since. And that's. I, I tried to raise this in the in the forward. A lot of this depends on where you came to the party. Mm-hmm. So for someone of your father-in-law's generation, it was Demoulis, and they're, they're never going to call it Market Basket. Mm-hmm. And they may even call it Demoulis with a D-E and a capital M, which was, I think, right. what their, even though that wasn't the family name, that's how they, that's how they branded it. Stylized. Uh, Whereas for, yeah. for me, it's always Market Basket because that's what it was. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because they, they do have some branding around Demoulis now that's, you know, it's an interesting throwback. <laughs> but getting back to, to the dynamic that was going on during 2013-14, it's interesting that this rebate, this 4% rebate to mm-hmm. loyal customers comes during that <laughs> interregnum period. In 2013, the board almost fired RDT. Mm-hmm. 
That was the shot across right. the bow. And I think that's when he began implementing this strategy of buying the loyalty of his employees, buying the loyalty of his customers, buying the loyalty of his, of his vendors. In this 4% piece, which is gone now. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, it, went, it really went away maybe two months after the, after everything settled. Mm-hmm. But to the extent that your, your strength with your customers is partly customer service, mm-hmm. which people say they, they love, in reality, people shop on price. When you're shopping for commodities like mm-hmm. groceries, the price is what really drives a lot of people. Yep. Right. Um, if, especially since that's their this is their business plan. We're a low-price supermarket. Some people don't want to shop at the low-price supermarket. They want to shop at Whole Foods or something like that. They have, you can choose your niche. You can choose your brand. And uh, this was their brand. But they really played it up. And then when they now have to make good on this $1.6 billion of debt, they can't afford to give away 4%. They can't afford to be the lowest cost on everything. Right? They have to pay the piper. I, I, I was struck by how, I think it was, I guess, the summer of 13 when the first shot across the bow happened. Mm-hmm. And it was almost a dry run of what happened the next year. Mm-hmm. I mean, the board was really ready to fire him. And for assorted reasons. And they had a great outpouring of mostly employees, but some customers and some vendors and they had a big protest outside of where the the meeting was Mm -hmm. and they backed the board back down i'd like to know more about why the board backed down as well the biggest issue at that time was the profit sharing yeah the bonuses for this and and he once he was got got to stay he went whole hog yeah again in money talks you buy in the loyalty of your employees most of whom are part-timers none of whom are unionized all of whom have loyalty to this very charismatic figure. This guy, it's like a cult of personality almost. Right. That they think RDT is the best thing since sliced bread. He knows their name. He asks about their kids when they're in the hospital. And he provides a good job and a bonus. And promotes from within. Promotes from within. We don't bring in people from business school. Or we're, if right. you work hard, you'll rise. Right. right. Yeah. And then, so, I mean, it was such a, it was, yeah. the, the RDS side was so tone deaf to this whole culture mm-hmm. that they bring in the like the classic MBA right. types from central casting. Right. Send like us over to it is. <laughs> it's yeah. like the and they, worst. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they were chewed up. They were yeah. they were totally unprepared for what they <laughs> no what idea they what they were getting into. They really yeah. didn't. Yeah. <laughs> Next I'd like to ask all of the panelists, turning to the contributors' pieces that we have in the symposium, what did you learn from the other contributors' pieces and what did you find most most interesting and in, any of them, all of them? I'll say with regard to the, the piece that uh, Professor Lustig and, and Professor Finneran did, you know, it, it prompted me to, to really think about preconceptions that we have um, in terms of how corporations are supposed to be <laughs> and how sometimes there's an outlier that uh, challenges you to think about, well, how might they really be? One of the things that I, I don't think I gave as much attention to in my article was the, the rich history in Massachusetts of fiduciary duties owed to minority shareholders. It would be an interesting discussion to have. Certainly, in the in the long history of the Demoulis litigation, cases like Wilkes get cited many, many times. So this is not something that would have been foreign to the cousins. But that's against type two, right? So that in the classic cases, the Rod versus, Donahue versus Rod Electrotype and Wilkes versus Springside Nursing Home, in both of those cases, the person who's the plaintiff is really pretty powerless. Mm-hmm. They've been ganged up on, and they have no options. Right. Mm-hmm. So 
Mrs. Donahue has no place to sell her shares, and she's just at the mercy of the Rod family. Well, okay, let's articulate a rule that says it, it seems that closely held businesses, closely held corporations, and partnerships are, are pretty much the same in terms of the, the dynamics among the principles. Let's also force those principles to deal with each other in, in the same way, and so that everyone has an equal opportunity to things that are happening in the, in the corporation. If you're buying out Mr. Rod's shares, you have to buy out Mrs. Donahue's shares. Okay. But then, just a year later, the SJC says, well, we didn't exactly mean that. <laughs> we didn't exactly mean that sh shareholders in a closely held corporation are essentially partners because we recognize that sometimes the majority has their own interests, their own selfish interests. Self selfish ownership. Selfish ownership. Um, and although we're going to mitigate a situation like they find in Wilkes, where one of the four guys basically uh, on a pretext is kicked out. Mm -hmm. Right. And say, so, no, you can't do that. You have to articulate some legitimate business purpose. You have to show that, give the other side a chance to show that the same objective can be achieved in a less harmful way, but then let the judge or the court decide. That makes sense as a scheme, but having it work in reality, I don't know that it actually does work that often in reality. I don't know that I've seen it play out. But in either event, those two landmark cases don't look a lot like the case that's before us here where we have two heavy hitters, one of whom actually controls the company even though he's technically a minority shareholder. If anyone's been abusing anybody, the argument can be made, he's been abusing the majority. <laughs> and then, in a peak of just hubris, he says, you know, if you kick me out as manager, you're gonna, I'm gonna invoke the scorched earth tactic. You're gonna inherit a company that's basically worthless because all the customers are gone, all the vendors have deserted you, and your employees have mutinied. Is that what you want? And so it's hard to find a lot of sympathy for the classic Massachusetts cases where the minority shareholder has to be given special treatment when the minority shareholder is RDT. <laughs> it's right. hard to really muster the, the, the sympathy necessary to help mm -hmm. him out. Right. So that's, one of the, that's what I learned. I mean, it, it forced me to think about that. And I would say the same thing, just picking up on the discussion in Professor Lustig and Professor Finneran's article about that Wilkes uh, line of cases and fitting that whole market basket saga into the Wilkes analysis. Um, and that inquiry was there. The defendant has to show a legitimate business purpose, right, for the actions it took. And, and did they have that um, legitimate purpose here? The, the, uh, there's a good argument that they did, given some of the things RDT was doing self-dealing and reaches a fiduciary duty so it, it they weren't completely wrong on the legal side um, and then but but having done it fired him and arguably having legitimate business purpose the whole uh, saga played out as we know so that the law uh, it's not inadequate I don't think it just tell it only tells part of the story and so maybe that's to your point it almost never works out the way you would contemplate in this nice little three-part analysis we have from Wilkes because um, people are just people, and so it, it was interesting to me to read that and to see how this saga fits into that analysis. Yeah. So what I enjoyed about reading the contributions, one was I enjoyed how uh, Gary pushed back. I think he acknowledged, I think, the way the book was written from pretty much RDT's side, and I think dealt with that up front in, in a nice way. And I also appreciated the way that you took essentially the facts in the, in the book and turned them into sort of a, a broader, you know, it ties into some of the other work you, you do about just governance, it's different theories of governance and, and breaking down the Burley-Dodd um, debate. What I enjoyed about uh, 
Eric's piece was, and I, and I just, when I was first read it, I just wrote sort of on the side, extrajudicial. He basically says they, they didn't care about the law. Um, they, just, they just basically, what he, what RDT did was really outside of the law. And I thought that was pretty interesting in the sense that, you know, we were talking about various legal structures. And he, I think, pretty accurately identified it's got nothing to do with law. This is this was a, a, a different thing. And then the title of what's law got to do with it made a lot, a lot more sense with it after I read it a couple pieces and really thought about the arguments. You know, it's really interesting. And I kind of thought you took what we were doing and pushed it. And instead of saying it's not just against type, it's just forget about law. You know, and, and, he, and he got away with it. Yeah. And that's interesting. Well, it, I appreciate those comments, Eric. That the the thing that was most interesting to me is, and, and Gary and I were talking about this before the session here. It's so hard in the wild to find a real dispute between the management, operating management, and the directors, because ordinarily you just get rid of the managers if they're doing something the board doesn't want them to do. This is such an unusual case where you can actually look at this and say the management has a different agenda than the directors do. And they're going to fight about it. And how are they going to fight about it? Well, they're not going to fight about it in court because they're going to lose officers versus directors. But can they fight about it in the court of public opinion? Can they fight about it with economic risk? Can they fight about it by just saying, you want this company? Here it is. It's a, it's a burnt husk. And if that's what you want, we'll give it to you. You can sue us later about whether we breach the fiduciary duty. To me, that was the most interesting aspect of it because you can't you can't find situations where you can examine that that conflict the way that this presents itself. Makes you wonder what Judge Lopez, maybe the SJC, thought about. I wonder what they think today about mm-hmm. what happened. It probably was completely unanticipated, and I think what she tried to do was well intentioned. But I wonder how much of what's happened. The key was to sort of create what appeared to be independent directors, but it's hard to say that they really were because they were elected by the shareholding interest. So it was a majority of shareholders voting. What made it weird was that the one shareholder on Arthur S. side of the family went and voted with, with RDT. Mm-hmm. We relied a lot on Margaret Blair's piece, which yeah. I thought was great. And I think she really got at that, which was theoretically this should have worked as a mediating hierarchy, but it didn't because structurally they weren't really independent. They were called independent. They met independent rules, but they really weren't. I've seen a lot of closely held businesses thrive, and I've seen a lot of them fall apart. If the principals don't trust each other, if they don't at least have a working relationship, it's not going to work. And so this eventually ends up in a buyout. Judge Lopez should have ordered a buyout back in the day because <laughs> it was just postponing the inevitable. Yeah. And if we had Gary's option of knowing more about Arthur S., <laughs> maybe we would have better insight as to how a post-RDT market basket would have operated, what it would have looked like. Maybe it wouldn't have been that bad. Mm-hmm. We don't know that. But we do know that it couldn't live forever with the house divided. However many years of really bad blood in that family. <laughs> I'm trying to go back to the dates. Basically, from, from the late 70s when they realized that Mike was basically right. stealing the company. It probably depends on where you start. But if George dies in 71, yeah. so that's 45 years Probably the family believed at that point 
it was bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure. I think kindly Uncle Mike was taking care of things for a while there, and then in the late '70s they realized, hey, hey, wait a second. Right. <laughs> no, no, they clearly, clearly. I'm just saying when they went back and said, well, it wasn't. We weren't treated as well as we could have. I think they probably went back to the date of the death and said. It may have been the start of it. There's also this theme that you, you see throughout American corporate law, and Henry Ford had this attitude too. Uh, they're shareholders and they're shareholders in a closely held business. Right. Mm-hmm. And Ford Com- Motor Company was a, a closely held business. And some of the shareholders put up the money, and some of the shareholders do the work. Henry Ford wasn't alone in thinking, I'm the guy who's doing all the work. Well, you know, the, you guys who just put up some money, I'm giving you money. You shut up now and go away. Let me do what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that same dynamic was here, but I suspect it was. That the Mike DeMoulis side was like, we're running this show. Right. We've built this company. It's our management expertise that has made all of us really, really rich. And the other side, shut up. And that was, and that was clearly, I think, what was going on in that first ten years of litigation. Mm-hmm. That was the argument. Yeah, absolutely. But that's not how the, the law works. No. <laughs> <laughs> but as you say, what's law got to do with it? Well, right. I guess, you know, in this case, maybe not. Not much. Something that keeps striking me is how not only is this a case study in corporate law and, and the closely held businesses, but it, it's kind of like a human case study because exactly. all of it comes down to individuals and how they felt, you know, in the relationships with others. So I'm glad you brought that up because now I'm putting on my professor hat. And <laughs> one of my challenges in business organizations is to get students to appreciate that this course is like every other course. Human beings have a conflict. Human beings have a conflict, and we need to figure out how to resolve these conflicts, sort of generally and specifically. And almost always in these situations, but even in big publicly held companies, there's human dynamics in play that are really at the bottom of the dispute. Mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't treated fairly. I was disrespected. I was cheated. And that's what motivates people to, to take legal action. Yeah. So I think your perception is very right on the money. And I'm glad you raised that. I always try to do that, too, with business organizations, especially where some students come to that course with a preconceived notion, well, this is, this is a little dry and, and I have to take it. And right. then you get into these sagas and these great, you can't make this stuff up. You mentioned the Ring, Ringling Brothers <laughs> and uh, the Benihana case, which is taught. You have the wife and the stepchildren fighting over the restaurant business. And I'm a big Smith v. Van Gorkum guy. Yeah, and all yeah, the, different, the different players in that, Jay Pritzker. And I love that they signed the agreement at the Lyric Opera. At the opera. Lyric Opera. I always <laughs> point that out. Can you believe this? He just took it and signed it um, yeah. because he was a patron of the uh, opera. So, yeah, these are great stories. You and don't they're have hum- to, they're you know, human stories. Yeah, and you're right. It's always somebody who feels, I wasn't treated right, I was disrespected. It ends up in, in a case book. Yeah, yeah. So. Huh. It's not just big, big business, cold-hearted you know, <laughs> MBA types fighting with other cold-hearted MBA types. It's mm-hmm. human beings, especially in the cases where you have the founders or, or, or the you know, immediate relatives of the mm-hmm. founders. This is, this is who RDT is. This mm-hmm. is him. Right. And he can't stand the idea that his cousin, who never contributed, mm-hmm. is going to have control. How, how old is RDT? Does anyone know? I'm sitting yeah. here listening to this. I'm wondering... <laughs> If there's a generation below him who's, all, who's sort of set to move mm-hmm. in, how long will this line run? I thought he was in the 70s, yeah. but I don't, I don't have a good I, I don't know. It would be remarkable because even the most successful family businesses really make it to the third generation. Yeah. Because what we already see with the authoress side of the family, success gets you away from the thing that made the company great in the first place. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the immigrants come over here, they, they probably had no choice but to start a business. And this is a story that continues to this day. 
that, you know, especially, and it bugs me during this year when, for some reason, immigration has become the scapegoat, not only in our own election, but across the world. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. Immigrants in this country are out-represented on the entrepreneurship side. They've come here, they see an opportunity, they, they develop it. And often we tell that, oh, that's the American story, that's the mm-hmm. American dream. But it's often because they have no other choices. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they can't get a job, their, their language skills aren't good enough, but they see an opportunity and they take it. And the Demulises, 100 years ago, were those folks. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And they hand off to their boys, right? And the boys understand it because they lived it. And now, by, by luck, Mike hands off to RDT. But already, George doesn't have anybody to hand off to because his kids have already tasted the success. Yeah. And they're not, gonna, they're not interested in being grocers. They want right. to be doctors or lawyers or international playboys. Mm-hmm. And now mm-hmm. to find the fourth generation, yeah. is RDT going to hand off to one of his kids? That would, that would be really unusual in the history of family businesses. Mm-hmm. Not unprecedented, but a real outlier. Yeah. Our last question for all of you is, do you think there will be a legacy from this saga and if so, do you foresee a legal legacy, a business legacy, or both? I think for me, I just reiterate what I said earlier, that the, the legal analysis here, the legal framework, is not inadequate, but it, it does not tell the whole story. And I think you see that in a lot of these sort of disputes that we were just talking about. So I, I think that's it, that you can put this into a legal framework, but that's, you know, the legacy is that that's not going to tell you the whole story. You have to look further to really understand what happened. I think there's clearly a business legacy. I think this is going to be taught, it's already taught, there's a, there's, there's a case study that teachers at MIT have put together I think the business strategy is clearly one that's going to be studied and was really remarkable. And the human story will keep on repeating itself from the story of immigrants turning entrepreneurs and family going through generations and all of the trials and tribulations, specifically trials. But um, it really is, it's certainly maybe a little unusual, but it's not unique. I mean, there's the Redstone family going through something mm-hmm. right now. The in Boston, the Berkowitzes, legal seafoods. Seafood. Um, yeah. You know, this is just—it's just not that uncommon. One of the things that I haven't done yet is there's a couple of movies that are out on this. And has anyone seen the movies? One's called I think We the People, The Market Basket Effect, something along those lines. And one's called Food Fight. The first one's a high budget, widely released as the one Food Fight was a much smaller budget. So I'm curious to see both of those movies to see whether they take a side or whether they're sort of down the middle. The legal effect is is interesting, and I don't know what's going to happen as, as they operate and try to handle this very large debt. There's been a lot of, I've tried to go through most of it, but there's been a lot of litigation over the years, and none of it's particularly remarkable. I think it would be fun to think about how this case, if it was litigated on a closed corporation, vast closed corporation basis, what, what would happen. And the case that I'm thinking of that would be interesting would be the Selmark case, which is the most recent, important, I think, closely held case. Because in that case, it's not a question of a one party clearly doing wrong, one party clearly doing right, which was really what's happening as this line of cases developed. I mean, I think both Arthur S. and RDT clearly did things that could be viewed as against the fiduciary duty of their, their other shareholders. And in the Selmark case, one of the closely held minority shareholders who ends up getting squeezed out by the majority, he goes ahead and breaches fiduciary duty. And it's interesting because, of course, you can't do that. 
and sort of that weighing where both parties are, are wrong, I think is maybe the next step. And I'm not sure there's, there's not a lot out there. And so in that sense, this would be interesting and might have some legs. But I think the fact pattern and the business side keep going. I'm not sure legally that a lot of new ground is here. I mean, that, that was sort of our conclusion in our piece. Well, I agree with you, Eric, that the business side will live on. The business side has already entered folklore yeah, yeah. as right up there with Aaron Fairstein oh, yeah. keeping Malden Mills employees oh, yeah. uh, on mm-hmm. the payroll after the mill burned down. And there's a certain inevitability to that. People want to believe this story. You want, you want to have this be the, the good outcome. And why can't all businesses be this way? I think MBA types can learn a lot from the, from the MIT case study, I think, was really well done. I think if you stop and consider how sometimes doing the right thing, even if you're doing it to maximize profits, sometimes it's the right thing to do. Sometimes it's a happy coincidence that you can make a lot of money by also being a good citizen. You know, We've gotten so focused on short-term profit maximization that managers, I think, are ill-serving their shareholders in focusing on the next quarter instead of the next 10 years and they're missing opportunities. So I think there's a lot of business lessons to be learned from it. I'm not so sure there's a lot of legal lessons because it wasn't resolved in the, in the mm-hmm. courts, right? What legal lessons are you going to take away from this? Other than, I think, in my piece, I talk about how Bob Thompson out at Georgetown has a nice article out that tries to make sense of whose interests corporate law serves. And it says it's really a balancing act. And this gives it yet another illustration of how his characterization of, of corporate governance actually makes sense. It doesn't set a precedent because there's nothing to cite. But it may have the extrajudicial effect of being a lesson to other boards and other managers who look at what happened with this and think, okay, we've got to avoid the market basket situation. And maybe that tempers their behavior in a certain way. So that's my thought on the legacy. But I just wanted to point out, (laughs) according to unimpeachable sources, that is Wikipedia. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) RDT was born in 1955. So he's only 61. Mm. And Arthur S. was born in 1958. And RDT has, RDT has four kids, uh, three daughters and a son, and I don't know if they're involved in the business. So they're younger than we thought. Mm. Yeah. They're each. Yes. <laughs> As we look at each other. They're young. <laughs> As we look at each other, we're thinking, that's pretty young. Um, so, yeah. I Older think that, than me. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, well, is there anything else that you wanted to share with our podcast audience? I would only add that we're looking forward to the pieces being published in The Honor Man. But until then, if you want to look at any of the drafts, there I think all three of our pieces, and actually the forward is as well, so four pieces, are posted currently to SSRN. And obviously you can contact any of us for, for a draft as well. Yeah. If you've listened this far, let me give you a hearty <laughs> thank you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> thank you. And uh, urge you to, to read the pieces. Uh, I think there's a, lot, there's a lot to be gleaned from them. Thank you. Thank you as well. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you all for contributing and for joining me today for the podcast. I really appreciate it. The New England Law Review's recently published Volume 50, Issue 1 is available on our website under the Current Issue tab. Information about our forthcoming articles is available under the forthcoming tab as well. The articles from our guests today will be published on our website under the On Remand tab as part of Volume 50. And as Professor Lustig said, they're also posted on SSRN. Also be on the lookout for several blogs posted over the summer from New England Law Boston faculty who contribute their experience, commentary, and perspectives to recent U.S. Supreme Court decisions. I'm Volume 51 Executive Online Editor Amanda Palmera. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for more from the New England Law Review On Remand podcast.